Let's talk about drag for a minute. Because as much as I hate when cis people assume I'm into RuPaul's Drag Race, drag itself is a vital part of trans history. But this is the sort of thing that's been forgotten, and that's no accident. In 1971, Drag Magazine published its first issue and defined the term as this. The drag queen is one of the many different types of the transvestite phenomenon. He is many times more militant and flamboyant than his transvestite sisters. The drag queen is almost always of the homosexual variety of the transvestite and is usually more relaxed and realistic than the other types. This undoubtedly is due to his having no qualms about his masculinity as the so-called straight sister. Being completely at ease in the feminine role, he often comes across to the viewing public as the real thing. This may be a bit confusing for modern ears because the terms homosexual and heterosexual transvestites are misnomers. A homosexual transvestite is now what we would call a straight trans woman, and the hetero transvestite a trans lesbian. Bisexuals didn't exist until the 90s, of course. But the point here is that the line was drawn in the article between what we would call a crossdresser, someone who dresses as another gender for fun or for other reasons, and a trans woman, someone who actually feels more comfortable in the, um, feminine role, every day. It was 50 years ago, y'all. Anyway, I bring this up because the tendency for the cis public to forget the past and ciswash our history is something that happens again and again. If you were to watch America's most popular television depiction of drag, you see drag mostly from the perspective of a very rich, very cis gay man. And his very safe, very glam, very cis version has been assumed in a lot of the culture as the only definition of drag, but we all know who threw the first brick at Stonewall. And as movies and even documentaries try to erase the complicated identities from history, trans women and drag queens have always been linked, and perhaps always misunderstood. And that leads us into our topic today, because 10 years before Stonewall, the transsexuals were causing trouble again. This is our Sacred History, a podcast about the forgotten stories of transgender people, a part of the Totally Trans Network. I'm Katie Coleman, and this episode is the Cooper Donuts Riot. Now, we've previously discussed among ourselves that this is a pro-riot podcast network. All riots, unfortunately, are not created equal. Currently in Ottawa, anti-mask truckers are creating an extremely dangerous environment as they insist on an end to COVID regulations. There was definitely a terrible riot in the not-so-distant past of this country on January 6, 2021. A riot is a tool, like any other, that can be used for good or for evil. So when we say we're pro-riot, I hope it goes without saying that we're pro-rioting when it benefits a marginalized community, like the Black Lives Matter riots of 2020, or the subject we're discussing tonight, or any time anyone throws something at cops. I suppose we should also say we're decidedly an anti-cop podcast network. So let's get into it. May 1959, in Los Angeles. Some would say the calm before the storm of the turbulent 1960s, but we know it was just anger and resentment, injustice and long-held resentments boiling under the surface. Virginia Prince was just starting to write to a pen pal across the country, an action that would have long-reaching effects and will be the subject of another episode. The most popular movie in America is Some Like It Hot, a movie about one man and one trans woman who don female disguises to escape the mob. And yes, I said that right. Jack Lemmon is trans in the movie, watch it again. 
this at the same time as cross-dressing laws were being reenacted across the country, where the clothes of the opposite gender get arrested. Cops use these laws to harass queer people, of course, and to try to eliminate the safe havens we'd found for ourselves. One such haven was Cooper Donuts, on 5th Street near Maine, right in downtown Los Angeles, or known then and now as Skid Row. A lot of the details about the place have been lost to history, but supposedly the little cafe was just around the corner from two gay bars, the Waldorf and Harold's Cafe. And most importantly, it was open all night. It may have been a regular donut shop and cafe during the day, and maybe even a place where the cops would get their snack of choice, but after midnight, the atmosphere was very capital Q queer. Much like the Perkins in my hometown, Johnson City, Tennessee, down the street from the gay bar New Beginnings. A chain bakery and diner, families ate there during the day, but when newbies closed at 3 a.m., the whole place was taken over by drag queens, usually half-dressed, walking from table to table, talking to admirers and closeted high school queers like me, and constantly smoking. This is where I met my first drag queen, who also happened to be trans, by the way. John Retchie was there in Skid Row, not Perkins, and he wrote an autobiographical novel in 1963 called City of Night. And if you haven't read it, I would recommend checking it out as soon as possible. The story of a Mexican-American hustler traveling the country in the 50s, it's a great microcosm of queer life in a time that most of my generation knows very little about. He describes the drag queens in downtown LA like this. Looking at Chuck and Miss Destiny, as she rushes on now about the turbulent times, I know the scene. Chuck the masculine cowboy and Miss Destiny the femme queen, making it from day to day like all the others in that ratty world of downtown LA, which I will make my own. The world of queens technically men, but no one thinks of them that way. Always she, their husbands being the masculine vagrants, fleetingly and often out of convenience, sharing the queen's pads, never considering they're involved with another man, the queen, and only for scoring, which is taking sex money, getting a meal, making a pad. He is himself not considered queer. He remains, in the vocabulary of the world, trade. So these drag queens, some of which we would now call trans women, some undoubtedly cis men, were visible and were present at the bars on Main Street and at Cooper Donuts, where on an unknown night in May, someone pushed the queens too far. As the great Leslie Feinberg notes in their landmark book, Transgender Warriors, Some people used to say that we looked gay, but unless we were holding hands with our lovers or walking out of the gay bar, it was not our sexual desire that made us visible. It was our gender expression. As drag kings and queens, we were at the top of a huge iceberg. And this is what makes this a vital part of trans history and not gay history specifically, and why the cross-dressing laws were such a big help to the cops in targeting trans and other queer people. The law then was called the Three Article Rule and stated that at least three articles of clothing a person was wearing had to match the gender labeled on their legal ID. So it was relatively easy to rescue drags, as they were known, both kings and queens, not to mention give them a beating they wouldn't forget. Some people even carried receipts for their clothes so they could prove it was a man's shirt or it's actually a blouse. But even when presented with such evidence, the cops could also arrest them for suspected prostitution, loitering, anything they could think of, as long as their dick got hard from harassing a queer person that night. So Coopers, as Reggie later described in 2005, 
was packed with drag queens, trans women, and gay men, many of them sex workers, and mostly people of color. It was a great spot for the cops to cruise by and pick up some quick arrests and ID checks. The tension was rising, and one night, it reached its peak. Ratchie and two others were arrested, and the queens started throwing things at the cops. Donuts, coffee cups, trash, anything they could get their hands on. The cops retreated and the riot spread. They had withstood enough. Maybe they'd be arrested tomorrow, but for one night, they weren't going to take it. They couldn't arrest everyone. Starting with resisting arrest, soon there was fighting in the street. People were screaming songs and rocking police cars. The cops had their hands full. Until, of course, backup arrived. The cops closed the street, arrests were made, and, um, order was restored. In the chaos, Retchie and many others were able to escape. More than likely, it was the drag queens who went to jail. At least, that's what Retchie told Stuart Timmons in 2005, 45 years after it happened, for Timmons' book with Lilith Faderman, Gay L.A., A History of Sexual Outlaws, Power Politics, and Lipstick Lesbians. There's no mention of the riot in the papers at the time, and it does seem strange that such a seminal event wouldn't be mentioned by anyone, not even Retchie, in City of Night, for so long. This may be an excellent example of how easy it is for queer, and especially trans stories, to be forgotten and suppressed by history. Sistery? Eh. Or it could be an example of a faulty memory. I choose to believe that something happened, and there's no reason to disbelieve someone unless given a good reason. So until evidence comes to the contrary, this story, now embraced by trans historians worldwide, is the one I'm accepting as fact. And if it turns out we're all wrong, well, then change is a constant in the pursuit of history. I'm sure there was a queer riot before this, probably hundreds that have been lost to time. But to the best of our knowledge, this was the first time in history that queer people fought back against cops with violence. And that's a very important milestone. The balance has started to shift. We began to realize that we actually did have power. We could fight back. We didn't have to go quietly or pretend to be someone we're not. And that's a powerful moment. Something so simple, really. Picking up a donut and throwing it at a cop. Screaming food fight as a symbol for thousands of years of oppression. And building a legacy. I wish I knew who it was. She deserves a statue. From Cooper's to Dewey's Lunch Counter to Compton's Cafeteria and the Stonewall Inn, all episodes I'll get around to doing in the future, of course, and the beginning of a beautiful history of cops getting shit thrown at their heads, something we can all get behind. I look forward to many more years of the same. Thanks for listening. I'm Katie Coleman. As always, I've included a list of sources in the show notes, but they are not formatted in any particular style because I'm not in college anymore and I'm tired. If you want to reach out to me for any reason, you can find me on Twitter at Katie of the Lake or email me at totallytransha at gmail.com. And until next time, remember, we've always been here. And more importantly, we always will be. So that's our first episode. This is our pilot season. For four weeks, we've got new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And if y'all like it, we'll make it a permanent edition. Coming up on Monday, we've got another Totally Trans Minisode with Henry, then on Wednesday, Ada Rhodes and Jack talk comics on transmissions from another Earth, and next Friday I'll be back again with another short story from our sacred history. We really appreciate your support as we grow this podcast network, and hope to create and foster the community we have here. 
You can support us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Podcast Addict, or whichever apps are doing reviews these days. You can also support us on patreon.com slash totallytrans, where you can get access to episodes early, bonus episodes once a month, and an invite to our Discord, which isn't turning into the party hangout we had hoped, but you can change all that very soon. We also have great shirts and other merch at both TeePublic and Redbubble, including a rad design from Ada Rhodes on the Cooper Donuts Riot. Also, if you are interested in sponsoring us, let us know, because we would love to work with queer and trans creators and not just sell you mattresses and meal kits. Trans creators like... NerdyCappy.com, pronounced Nerdy Cappy. I don't know why I read that part. (laughs) Do you want to read the Nerdy Cappy copy, cutie? I could do that. NerdyKeppy.com Quality Queerwear is a trans-owned and operated family apparel and accessories business in Portland, Oregon. As their name implies, they can drape you in affordable, gender-affirming fashion from head to toe and even offer a selection of home goods besides. So whether you're in the market for a dapper button-down or a dress with pockets, Nerdy Keppy will literally have you covered. You can get 10% off of your order at checkout with the discount Totally Trans. So remember, visit NerdyKeppy.com. That's N-E-R-D-Y-K-E-P-P-I-E dot com, or use the easier to remember, ithaspockets.gay. Use discount code TOTALLYTRANS for 10% off at checkout, and thanks again for listening. So, for our backers who back us at $5 or more a month on Patreon, they get a personal thank you uh, read live on the air. For these people, it'll be read both in this episode as well as the other episodes premiering this week. So. First, thank you, Artemis. Who possesses the eternal beauty of Aphrodite. Thank you, Emma X. Who has the wisdom of Athena. Thank you, Devin McCollin. Who runs with the speed of Mercury. Thank you, Zelda Elsroth. Whose lovely form hides the strength of Hercules. Thank you, Daria Brashear. Who could handily win a game of bullets and bracelets. And thank you, Lalandra Ali. Who gave up a life on Paradise Island to punch the shit out of fascists. God bless. God bless. Uh, (laughs) So thank you, everyone. Uh, Especially anyone who chose to to beat up fascists. That's fucking cool. Yeah. Yes. This is a role we've assigned you. Of uh, a tremendous sacrifice to give up your life on Bondage Island for fascist punching. Good job. Yeah. We appreciate you. Uh, And we appreciate all of our backers. Uh, let us know on Twitter if we said your name wrong. I hope I got it right. And make sure to listen to all the shows coming out this week so you get thanked more. 